Good morning. They gave me the platform again. I must have said something right back in June. I didn't even have to bribe them this time. I'm joking. I'm totally joking. Um, it is a privilege, though, to be up here again, uh, to be a source of encouragement to you all. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and enjoyed your time together reflecting on and celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus, the first advent or coming of our long-awaited Messiah, who 2,000 years ago opened the gates of salvation to everyone who believes in his sacrificial death, in our place, his burial and resurrection, to cleanse us from sin and reconcile us back to the Father in new life forever and ever. Amen? Amen. The good news of the gospel. And today I want to spend some time looking at the heart of Christ, specifically his compassion. Here at Bible Fellowship, we preach and teach in an expository style. We, um, we, we expound on details and meaning of a particular text and then learn how to apply it to our lives in such a way that we become more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And as many of you know, we've been studying the book of Romans for the last several months, and today we're, we're going to take a break as uh, when I was given this great privilege to, to preach this morning, I felt like I needed to share a, a heavy burden that the Lord has placed on my heart and um, touch on a, a very important topic for this day and age, namely the compassion of Christ. So this will be a bit different. This is a topical sermon. We'll be taking a comprehensive look at the compassion of Christ from a few passages and allow our hearts to develop into a heart like his. In the midst of a chaotic world, fear, hate, terror, death increasing day by day all around us, emotions are high. Good emotions, bad emotions but nonetheless, emotions are high in this day. And so I felt it would be good to make sure that as we enter into this new year, our hearts are oriented toward Christ, that they are anchored in Christ, as many of us uh, resolve to restructure certain areas of our lives entering into the new year. And so a good place to start would be to remind ourselves of who we are and where we're going. We at Bible Fellowship, we are committed to truth, to teach truth, to live according to truth. Our mission statement starts with advancing the gospel, that is, truth, proclaiming the truth of Christ. And it goes on, advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples, disciples of Christ, that is. And so our mission starts with seeing Christ and hearing Christ and falling in love with Christ. And so it's my hope that this morning as we enter into the scriptures, hear from the word of Christ, we would know him more fully, love him more deeply, and live for him more radically. Okay? So this will be fun. Uh, I want to look at two main texts this morning, one from Matthew, one from Luke, and uh, just to help strengthen our focus, and then close with a very short passage on uh, three, three applications from that short passage. First place we'll start is 
Matthew 25, 31 through 46, commonly referred to as the, the final judgment. Uh, ushers are coming around right now, passing out Bibles. For those who don't, don't have one with them, if you don't have a Bible at all, please accept this as a gift from our family here. We, everything that we preach, teach, and hear, we measure according to the absolute and authoritative Word of God. So it brings us great pleasure to, uh, to provide you with one. Let's read from Matthew, but before I do, I'd like to open up with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we, we praise you this morning and we worship you. We ask that you, you remove us from the anxieties and the chaos of the world around us and the uncertainties from life, Father, and help us now focus on that which is certain, that which is true, who you are, what you've done for us, your love for us. We give you our minds to think through them, our hearts to feel through them. Father, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your love. Raise us up as a, as a powerhouse of, as, of ambassadors for Christ and send us out into the world on fire, driven by your compassion and secured in your sovereignty. And we lift you up this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so at this point in Matthew 25, Jesus is responding to a question that his disciples asked him. When will your second coming be? And what will be the signs of your return? And this question is very relevant to us today because right before this question was asked, this question was asked right before Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, was resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so today, we, we wait in anticipation for these very signs as we await his second return, his second coming. Final judgment. Jesus' answer is referred to as the Olivet Discourse which, Discourse, which took place on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. First, he gives a detailed account of world events, and then as well as cosmic events that, that will accompany his return. Wars, hate, rebellion everywhere, even amongst us believers. Expect these things, he says, but do not fear. For I will be with you, and this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. I am the one who reigns. Then he tells them a number of parables, allegorical stories, teaching lessons on watching and waiting and being diligent and, and being productive, prepared for his second coming. Now in this last part, he illustrates the reality, not a parable, the reality of... Um, of what will happen upon his return. He offers promises of reward and warnings of judgment that will accompany his return. So let's hear what he says. <clears throat> Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of, of, 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also... Then also then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this is it. This is the end of this age. Jesus returns, he establishes his throne as king, and he brings judgment upon all the nations who gather before him. All the nations here refer to all of humanity. There's no more time for anything else except judgment. The sheep understood as believers in this text are placed on his right, the place of honor. They are blessed by God and inherit the kingdom. And the goats, understood as non-believers, those who have rejected Christ in this life, are placed on his left, a place of dishonor here, and are cast into eternal punishment. Yet from what Jesus tells us, both goats and sheep, both believers and unbelievers, are somewhat surprised at the king's judgment. Before we get to the surprise, it's important that we clarify an interpretive issue here. At first read, if you were to just open the Bible and, and, and jump to and land on this text, it wouldn't be far off to conclude, hmm, looks like it's our good works and our deeds that get us into heaven. Does our good works save us? By which all of Bible fellowship, having studied the book of Romans over the last several months, would answer with a resounding no. no. Of course not. In order to uphold any intellectual integrity, we must, we must analyze a, a, a passage in its context and, and comprehensively with the other, with its surrounding texts. The Bible, and it's specifically what we've studied over, uh, over these last several months, but all through the New Testament, we see that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And someone might ask, okay, Austin, well then how do you know if you're saved? Fruit. When you hear the gospel and believe it, and you put your trust in Christ, 
You are adopted into the family of God, baptized into the Holy Spirit. Christ then lives and dwells inside you. You cannot help but to produce fruit, to begin walking according to the good works that have been prepared for us to do, Paul says. This is the evidence of our salvation, that we are becoming more and more like Christ. Not that we're already there, but that we're much further along or further along than we were. Excuse me. Page three. <laughs> and so one scholar said, Matthew 25, 31 through 46 does not deal with the root of salvation, but rather, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, deals with the fruit of salvation. Jesus, earlier in, in Matthew 12, says, says, make the tree good and its fruit good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by its fruit. And so Jesus brings forth the evidence of their salvation or condemnation here in Matthew 25, not the basis of their judgment, okay? Just to clarify that. And we also know this by verse 34. Look, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom was theirs before they were even born. They didn't earn anything. So now that we've clarified that, how does Jesus describe the pathways of both the sheep and the goats in this text? Based on the evidence from this text, what is the difference between these two groups? Look at the text. The sheep say, Lord, when did we do these things to you? And he says, verse 40, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And the goats, Lord, when did we not minister to you? The king's response, as you did not do to one of the least of these, referring back to his brothers, you did not do to me. The difference between these groups is how they treated other Christians. I never, I didn't, I never knew, I, was, I never thought about that before studying it this month. For the last six years, I always thought that this text was, was a, a universal um, exhortation to, to care for all the needy. But specifically here, Jesus is talking about mercy and compassion toward his brothers. Nowhere does Jesus refer to unbelievers as his brothers. In fact, in, also in Matthew 25, a, a man comes to Jesus and says, and says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He points, he's extend, he points to his disciples and said, these are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
Jesus is urging us to consider the needs of our brothers and sisters in the household of God and to be quick to meet those needs, especially the least of them, those who are in the most amount of need. Look at the acts of compassion, too. He's not asking us to sell all our belongings. He's asking us to meet their most basic needs. He's asking us to provide food, health, shelter, companionship. And so my first point is this. The compassion of Christ produces compassion towards believers because we see Christ in them. It's very simple. We have compassion. Believers should be quick to meet the needs of other believers because we see Christ in them. They are our family members. And now I know often we may not see Christ in the way that we're treating one another. You may not see Christ in me at times, but we know that they are a part of our family and that Christ for surely is in them and with them. They are our family members. Paul says in Galatians 6, let us do good to everyone and especially those in the household of the faith. James goes on to say, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, without work, if it does not have works, is dead. If we claim to be a believer with our mouths and can look upon a brother or sister in need and not even think twice in, in, in helping meet, it, meet those needs practically, tangibly, relieving them of, of, of hurt and hardship and suffering, James says, that faith is dead, empty, no love of Christ there. And this translates to every area of our lives, from right here in our church, among those closest to us, to all over the world where our brothers and sisters are being persecuted for their faith in ways that we couldn't even imagine. The persecuted church. Our brothers and sisters who dwell at the heart, the beating heart of God all through the scriptures are today laying down their lives in extraordinary ways for the advancement of the gospel, for the love of Christ, for his great name's sake. We see it all over the news all over our media outlets, all over our politics. We hear it in, in our everyday discussions. We see it in the acts of terrorism throughout the world. We hear it from our missionaries. We see it in the refugee and migrant crises. What do we do about it? How do we, disciples of Christ, brothers of Christ, also in the family of God, respond? Now, I'm not going to get into much detail regarding the many current events out there that are, um, that are raising a lot of emotion right now, but I will touch on one briefly, the refugee crisis. There's a lot of dissension over this right now, a lot of heat, a lot of emotion, and the church is not exempt from that debate. 
very controversial issue. I think a good place to start, for us to start, is to maybe consider Jesus was a refugee. His family was not welcomed. When Mary was in imminent need of, of giving birth, and so they had to find shelter in a stable, and then immediately after coming into this world, he had to flee. And so they fled to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill the boy in order to hinder the advancement of the kingdom. This is a storyline that is not much different than what we're seeing in the world today. When it comes to the refugees, there, there's, a, there's a big mix. Some are our brothers, some, some are our brothers and sisters in the household of faith, some are not. And we'll get to that and how we should be responding comprehensively by the end. But, but we can't forget about, about those that are um, within the household of the faith amongst the refugees. The picture of the nativity scene that's been out in the, in the lobby as we've been passing in and out of, of, the, of this church for the last month. Not only is that a picture of... The most pivotal point in the history of humanity, namely the incarnation of God, God coming into this world, that's an illustration of a family of refugees in crisis. I feel like we forget that part. Maybe we've gotten so comfortable here that we've also forgotten that we're refugees, we're sojourners. Christians are aliens. Someone's thinking, amen, I knew it, weirdos. No, not that type of alien. Peter says, we are strangers, foreigners, who dwell here temporarily as we long for home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are passer-byers. Jesus says, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. And he says to the stranger, his disciples, when he sent them out, when they receive you, they receive me. And when they receive me, they receive the one who sent me. Truth. And yet, when I find myself scrolling through the various media outlets and engaging in conversations with many of my brothers and sisters, I hear a, a lot of opinions. I'm feeling a lot of emotion. But I'm not hearing much of the voice of Christ. I'm not feeling much of the compassion of Christ. In fact, I feel like I find myself more often heartbroken and, and a bit discouraged than encouraged with our response. And family, I am not here to point fingers or reprimand anyone, but I am here to, in, to urge us all for the love of Christ to allow the heart of God and the word of God to, to shape our perspective on these issues. Our brothers and sisters are involved Christ is involved. Eternity is at stake. And Jesus tells us, it's only going to get worse. How will we respond? 
And what I'm not saying is, is that we don't, that we just loosen up security. I'm all for security. I think we should be wise about how we go about this. But what I am saying, what I'm also saying is, is not forget that our brothers and sisters are involved in, in, in these huge world issues. Can't forget them. Can't forget about what Christ is doing. Maybe a good place to start would be to ask yourself, what is God doing here? As we see chaos, tragedy, terror, what is God doing? How is God at work? How can my, how can my response honor Christ? How can I extend the compassion of Christ toward my fellow brothers and sisters for his sake? I think of my friend A.R., pastor of outreach at a prominent church in New York City, in New York City originally from Pakistan who a few weeks ago, he and his wife, I love them, they were telling me about life in Pakistan for Christians. That's where he was born and raised. They have a caste system similar to India's, where, where the Dalits the, are among the lowest class, the untouchables. And on Pakistani ID cards, they have to identify their religious affiliation. And so in a country that's 97% Muslim, Christians are immediately classified as Dalits. Christian, Dalit, untouchable. What does that mean? Subject to a life of slave labor, and for young girls and women, a life of sexual abuse. Talk about confessing your name before men and bearing the cross for his sake. They have families that work brick kilns like slaves all day long for barely any provision. Health services denied once they present their ID cards and Christian is identified. No wonder Jesus urges us to visit the sick. There's a whole lot more to consider here. Praise the Lord, A.R. A.R.'s sister has dedicated her life to advocate for their justice out there, and so is he, his wife, and their church from right here in New York City. I think of Carolyn Zimmerman, here among us, who has remembered our sisters in prison and ministers to them regularly to strengthen them and encourage them. They are among our forgotten ones. They live in some of the toughest conditions here, and Caroline, and now a few others from right here, praise the Lord, have, have been struck with the compassion of Christ, so much so that they dedicate their lives to ministering to our untouchables. Opportunities to help our brothers and sisters in need are all around us, from here in our backyard to the ends of the earth. Pray for them, seek them, take action. We'll get to that in just a minute. But what we've seen so far is the compassion of Christ produces compassion toward believers because we see Christ in them. They're in our family. What about unbelievers? What does the Bible have to say about unbelievers? Does the Bible say anything about mercy toward unbelievers? Yes. Of course, probably even more so toward everybody than, than the explicit passages on, on our, our mercy and compassion toward those within the household of faith. Just open the Bible, anywhere. 
all through the Old Testament into the New. We see the heart of God being poured out towards all people, especially those who hate him. Why? Because we all hated him. And he showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Someone's thinking, I know this, I know this, you should. We just learned it. Romans 5 8. While we were his enemies, hating him, loving sin, loving ourselves, rebelling against God, not giving, not caring a lick about who he is and what he's done for us. While we were still sinners, he looked upon us from heaven and had great compassion and said, Jesus, go, save them. I love them too much to see them perish. And so in view of his great mercy towards us, he wants us to love our enemies. Look with me now at Luke 6. Luke 6, uh, verse 27 through 36. This is an an excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is again speaking directly to his disciples. Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to, one who, to the one who strikes you on, one, on, on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one, from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love only those who love you, Matthew 25 language here, if you love only those within the household of faith, if you love only those who love you, What benefit is that? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to only those who do good to you, what benefit is that? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Why? What's the point of all this? What's he calling for with this radical love? Since we know this is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew also shed some light on Jesus' words at the beginning of the sermon. He tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, our extravagant mercy draws men unto himself. People are dumbfounded, stunned, 
to see people loving those who hate them. Victims blessing their oppressors. The abused doing good to their abusers. It doesn't make sense. But that's just it. The compassion of Christ, is that's what makes it so marvelous. Like I said, his love is stunning. Jesus is in the business of working counterintuitively. That is, unexpectedly. Think about it. He's always worked that way. One of the most unexpected things about Christ is not Matthew 25, that he's going to come back as the cosmic judge to bring judgment upon all humanity. But rather, one of the most surprising things was that he first came in the form of a baby, a humble servant who laid down his life and became the most hated and abused man to ever walk the face of this earth. No one has been more abused and manhandled than Jesus Christ to save us. The gospel is entirely countercultural. The concept of being saved by grace is radically opposed to all other performance-based salvations that every other religion demands. He teaches his disciples that the first in the kingdom will have to be last. The greatest will have to be the servant. Advance the kingdom by force? No, no, no. By sacrifice. By laying down your lives. And if you think about this for a minute, it begins to make sense. As the world grows more and more corrupt and perverted, his light shines brighter through the lives of his people. His grace shines all the brighter against the backdrop of increasing darkness. And he draws men in. You see how that works? We make a difference in this world because we are a difference in this world. Nobody loves like that. There's a whole lot of philanthropy out there, but not a lot of sacrificial, selfless love. For instance, have you heard of the other legacy of 9-11? I bet most haven't. Yes, most of us know that since the, terror acts, the terrorist acts of 9-11, ISIS and Al-Qaeda have grown stronger and more active. But did you know that since 9-11, in 14 years, seven times the amount of Muslims have come to the faith, have, have been melted with a spiritual understanding of who they are in Christ, and have come, have come to the faith and just laid down their lives for Christ. Seven times the amount in the last 14 years than the last 1,400 years combined since Muhammad died. Does that get you excited? Praise the Lord. Not for our loss on 9-11, but that that which man intended for evil, God has made for good. They don't teach you that on the news. 
Muslims are being stirred up in ways they've never seen before. Like never before, questioning their faith, honestly seeking God, and he is revealing himself to them. He's doing an extraordinary work among the Muslims right now in guiding them in their hearts and guiding them towards Christians. Christians who are receiving them, welcoming them, and, and lavishing the compassion and love of Christ on them. Caring for them, providing hope for them in the face of hate and conflict and terror and persecution. And this leads to my second point. First, we see that the compassion of Christ produces compassion towards believers because we see Christ in them. And secondly, the compassion of Christ produces compassion towards unbelievers because we want to see Christ in them. We don't love those within the family of, the, of God so much so that it, that it, that it, that it becomes an, at the expense of increasing the family. We care because he cares. He cares not to see any man perish, but that all would come to a saving faith. Did you catch the end of the passage in Luke 6? Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Mercy begets mercy. We love because we have been loved. We serve because we have been served. We lift up because we have been lifted up. I think of Celestin Musakora, as many of you know now from Alarm, the ministry in Africa who we're supporting through our Advancing the Gospel project to equip and mobilize our brothers and sisters to build up the church and reach the Muslims in, in, in North and, and Eastern African countries. I think of Ricky and Erin Otto right here among us. A young family of four who, as many of you know, a young family like that, they are stretched to the max, to the max. There's not much room for anything else. Yet, Ricky and Aaron remember a day while they were still sinners that God captivated their hearts and said, Come, I will be your father. You will be my children. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. No one nor anything can snatch you from my hand. And so in response, they have opened their doors to receiving, periodically throughout the year, they receive children from China. China, a country who, which has provinces that, that, that Jesus is absolutely forbidden. Christianity is forbidden in many of these provinces. Many of these children that come here, they have never even heard the name Jesus. They just had a boy last summer, never heard of him. They're getting another, another one in, in two weeks for a couple weeks. Ricky and Aaron, too, have been so struck with the compassion of Christ, they say, welcome. Welcome. There's a place for you here in my family. Let me tell you about Jesus. It doesn't get much better than this, fam. Reaching the ends of the earth from their living room. 
I hope that my heart continues to develop like those in the stories I've shared this morning. Too often I'm reminded I got a, I got a whole lot of growing to do. But I'm going to make an honest effort to strive more diligently in this next year to seek after and cultivate a heart of Christ, especially after preparing this sermon. I felt like, I felt like it'd be good to share, share this with you. Two days ago, I was driving home after reading through my sermon, and I'm driving home thinking about the things that I've been studying, and all of a sudden, I just welled up with emotion and burst into tears. That doesn't happen to me. It doesn't often at all. But it makes sense. It makes sense. I have been lingering in the heart of Christ for a week straight. I've been thinking about the things that he is most concerned about. I have been feeling his compassion towards the things most dear to him, his people. You know what the first thing that happened right after I burst into tears? I said, the first words that came out, where do I begin? Where do we begin? Now I want to close with one last one last short, short passage, and I want to extract three starting points from this. Uh, this is in Matthew 9, okay? Matthew 9, uh, verses 35 to 38. Dr. Brian Loritz offers three points from this passage that I thought would be great for, uh, to use for our application. I'm going to call them starting points for us. Where do we begin? Let's, let's allow Jesus to guide us in our application today. Uh, Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Starting point number one, see it. Jesus is going about his day. Keep that in mind. He's going through the cities, going about his daily activity. Okay, this is everyday life. These are spontaneous interruptions that we should expect, see it. When he saw the crowds, look for, find the needs, be burdened. Jesus says, look at them. They're harassed, helpless, lost. Pray that the Lord would show you opportunities. Pray that he would give you specific burdens. Look for them. Be attentive Every day. Point two, feel it. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion. Feel it. We must see the need and feel the need. Have compassion. Pray that the Lord would lead you in your burden. Pray for his heart, his perspective. In this area, seek the scriptures. Seek to develop these burdens. 
Seek to feel how he feels and think his thoughts. Most of the time we stop at see it, right? Then we change the channel or flip the page or keep scrolling or keep driving or keep walking. Maybe, maybe a spark of compassion emerges, but then usually we rationalize our way out of it. Oh, I'm so busy anyway. I couldn't take, couldn't possibly take on another thing. Or we tell ourselves, oh, there's so, so many needs everywhere. Where would I even begin anyway? Which leads to the third and final starting point. Do something about it. See it, feel it, do something about it. Jesus, immediately after he saw the crowds, had compassion. And what does he do right after these, right after these verses? He starts healing and helping and teaching and preaching hope to a helpless, hurting people. He gets others involved. He prays, he, he equips them and sends them out and tells them to pray that even more would get involved. If we don't get to step three, doing something about it, I would, I would suggest, I'd go so far as to say we are wasting the love of Christ. After you've seen a need, felt a need, seek out how you can be involved to make a difference. Where do you go? Who do you see? For one, you're looking at them. I'll help. Come see me. That's, that's my role here at the church. It's where my heart's. That's what I love to do. We have many opportunities right here locally to come alongside many of our, one of our, our many mercy ministries locally, globally. We are restructuring our missions um, uh, strategy right now so we can get everyone more and more engaged in globally. Come to me. Let's talk. Come speak with me about our, our ministries. Maybe we can line one up or, or even start one. Maybe you begin to see with Bible Fellowship why we're engaged in areas of the world like North Holland. Why we're coming along the Dutch church to be the voice of Christ in a godless nation. Maybe, maybe you begin to see God at work in extraordinary ways and, and want to join our efforts in reaching the Muslims of New York City, those whom he, he's brought to our doorstep. I'm pushing these trips because I know that they'll awaken something inside of you that maybe you've never known before, the compassion of Christ for the lost. Maybe you've heard a ministry today that you'd like to hear more about. Come see me. Let's talk. Hopefully now you see, you've been, see, you've been starting to see and you see more clearly why we're engaging an initiative in Trenton where urban centers tend to have a, a, a more higher concentration of said needs. Be praying for us in our endeavors as a family. We hope to one day be in everybody, to have everybody engaged in our outreach. But we can be praying now. Pray for the church. Pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. 
that the Lord would provide them with an extraordinary level of joy and comfort, that the gospel would go forth in and through their lives. Pray for the world. This is who we are. This is who we are striving more and more to become. This is how we advance the gospel, by making disciples. This is how we go about loving God, loving others, and living for Christ. In summation, the compassion of Christ produces compassionate lives toward everyone. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and, and you're, you're contemplating just the, the claims of Christ. Maybe you've recently been seeking and now you're hearing, seeing a little bit more about the love of Christ. It's important to know that we can't have or manifest or begin to, to work out the compassion of Christ unless we have Christ. We need to first accept him. Open your heart, come to him in prayer, receive him. We can help guide you in that. Look to the left or right, any of your brothers or sisters, any of our brothers or sisters right here around us afterward if you have questions. Ask, how do I begin this process? I want to know Christ. I want to be radically different than the, than the crooked world around me. I want to be a new man. I want to be a new woman, being a transform, living a transformed life in Christ. It starts with knowing Christ, accepting him. The compassion of Christ produces compassionate lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for the depths of your love, Father, that, that we will never fully know, Father, that we, we long for more and more of we thank you that while we were still sinners, you looked upon us as your enemies and you sent your son to die for us, to redeem us, to reconcile us back to you. We love you. We pray for those who are considering the claims of Christ at this point in their life. We pray that you would continue to reveal yourself more and more to them, draw them closer to you, that they too would be able to bask in in, in knowing, in, in the fullness of life in Christ, in knowing you, in receiving the, the promises of Abraham, and, and, and knowing here and now that we are with you forever and ever. And for those of us who, who have known you and maybe have grown a bit stale or cold, pray that you would revitalize our hearts entering into this new year. Cultivate more and more the compassion of Christ in us that we be powerful sources of light in this world, powerful ambassadors of Christ for your great namesake. Father, we give you all the glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks.